Hey folks, welcome to Narratives. Narratives is a podcast exploring the ways in which the world is better than in the past, the ways it is worse, and the paths towards a better, more definite vision of the future. I'm your host, Will Jarvis, and I want to thank you for taking the time out of your day to listen to this episode. I hope you enjoy it. You can find show notes, transcripts, and videos at narrativespodcast.com. Well, Mark, how are you doing this afternoon? I'm doing fantastic. How are you? Doing great. Thanks so much for taking the time to kind of come on the show here. Do you mind giving us a brief bio and some of the big ideas you're interested in? Sure. Uh, so um, I worked as a product manager in search when search used to be cool um, for everybody basically but Google. Um, and then I'm a three-time CEO. Uh, one was uh, an AI newsreader called Zeit, uh, sold that to CNN and then sold it to Flipboard. Um, uh, the next one was a spin out of Los Alamos focused on satellite imagery. So AI for satellite imagery to understand the planet. Um, and then I ran an ag tech startup, um, focused on using AI to help farmers. Um, and now I'm CTO at a community of nonprofits in DC. So I've been all over the place, but my real passion is trying to take deep technology and turn it into something useful. So most of the startups I've worked at have either had a lot of scientists in them and or been spun out of a lab. Um, and that's really my passion area is how do we take all the incredible work that's being done in labs um, and turn it into something that's useful. That's great. That's great. And you mentioned, uh, you know, you worked at a startup down there in, uh, at a Los Alamos, which, which is interesting. And now you're working in D.C. Um, I, I'm curious. It seems like... And a libertarian think tank, no less, if you don't mind me categorizing it. I, I, I think that that's safe to say. Uh, I mean, <laughs> we're, we're many things. I would say that um, a focus on liberty may be one way to put it. I mean, our three yeah. core principles here are um, that we believe in people, but we prefer bottom-up solutions to top-down solutions, and we'll partner with anyone to do right. Um, nice. and I think some people can read liberty into that, but really... The goal here is to address the root causes of some of America's greatest challenges. So we work on everything from criminal justice reform to free speech and peace to, and to economic progress. And I would say, really, um, you know, the community of nonprofits that exists here um, exists to try to address those problems from as many angles as possible. So, you know, right. I'm working here in technology. Uh, we have folks focused on uh, community-based organizations, um, other folks focused on policy, uh, but really sort of it's a broad set of, of capabilities that we try to bring to bear on, on some pretty ter- hairy and tough issues. Love that. I love that. And, and, and not trying to, to come after you all at all. Um, but I, I just want to I want to paint the picture for this question, which is uh, something that's been bothering me for a long time. It is interesting. So, you know, you guys are focused on bottom up kind of solutions. You know, you worked at a startup out of Los Alamos. You know, the Manhattan Project turned into the Department of Energy, which seems to just be quite ineffectual. You know, we can't build any nuclear power plants. Like what's going on, man? Like uh, things just do not seem to be working at the federal government level. When it comes to technology, um, you know, what is your sense of what the heck has gone wrong? Like, why can the federal government not build technology anymore? Like, you know, this is what you're passionate about is, you know, bringing technology and making it, you know, deep, you know, scientific progress technology, making it useful to everyone. But it seems like the federal government is just not very good at that anymore at all. Like, you know, the best example anyone can come up with now is Operation Warp Speed. There's a question about how, like, effective, how, fa- you know, 
how fast that really could have been. Maybe it was a lot slower than like uh, we would have hoped. And that's kind of the shiny example right now of state capacity around the technological, you know, frontier for the U.S. government. What do you think has gone wrong? Is my thesis correct that we're a lot worse than we were in the 40s and 50s at building kind of technology from the federal government lens? Yeah, I mean, well, I would say a few things. One is that let's remind ourselves that we live in the Internet era, right? We went from not having mobile phones to everyone having mobile phones that are connected to all the world's information that are basically connected to processing units in the cloud that are equivalent to the human brain. I mean, a lot has happened just in the past few decades. So let's not forget that. But I think one, my first question is, what's the proper role of government uh, with respect to deep technology? Um, and sure, the Manhattan Project was a moment in time. Bletchley Park, right, when we, well, when when England figured out how to crack the Enigma code, right? These were yeah. really important projects. Maybe you can even say the Apollo program and the space race against, um, uh, against the Soviet Union, although that's probably a bigger stretch. Yeah. Those are sort of points in time where we really needed to bring technology to bear for existential threats to society. The reality is we don't really have that kind of existential threat anymore. So a lot of what the government does is more speculative for the future. Um, and I think the positive side is when the government tries to allocate dollars to deep tech to make society better. I think it's a great thing. I think that the dark side is when something like the NIH basically becomes a monopoly in funding and we're not getting the healthcare outcomes that, that we want to see when um, there's so much regulation in healthcare markets and the patient isn't put in the center of care such that entrepreneurs like me, I almost started, um, I almost spun a technology out of a medical center in Nebraska while I was there. Um, and the red tape and all the problems that were associated with it caused me to throw up my hands. So you've got a competent entrepreneur that basically when people say they want to go into um, some sort of healthcare related technology, the first thing I do is steer them away. So I think that like there's a lot of implications of the government sort of getting involved um, in, in deep technology. I mean, maybe the last thing I'll say is that certainly like a lot of money comes from the government that goes to universities and national labs. We do an absolutely abysmal job of spinning out technology. So there's a lot of things you could criticize, um, I think, in the science environment. Uh, But the one that I'm most focused on, because I've done this multiple times, is try to spin something out of um, an organization. So there's this well-meaning act called the Bayh-Dole Act way back in the 80s that was intended to, um, to spur more tech innovation. Um, and what are tech innovation coming out of these university centers that got government grants? What's happened with that is you've got this massive bureaucracy where these tech transfer centers, they feel like their primary job is to protect IP rather than get it out to the world. And I think that um, there's a lot of reform that could potentially happen there to encourage more entrepreneurs to want to work with uh, uh, research labs. That's great. No, that's a really interesting angle we actually haven't talked about on this podcast is, you know, tech transfers from basic research, you know, research labs or universities, university context definitely comes to mind. What are the biggest problems? Is it just the fact that people are protective of IP and it's more just like, you know, you're only going to get punished if someone goes out and makes a lot of money um, and there's only like downside risk to licensing. There's not upside risk for perhaps for the text transfer offices or is there something else going on there? Yeah, I mean, I think um, this obsession of wanting to, they, they treat this IP like it's a product. 
right? Okay. Like where you know what's going to happen at the other end. The right. reality is that most of those products are still in a very researchy phase that still needs an enormous amount of research engineering to figure out what the product could be and a lot of market development to figure out how to turn that into a product and go to market. So I think they're starting too far back in the process and demanding things like royalties, demanding these onerous uh, payments, and worse yet, keeping the talent in the organization rather than letting it spin out and trying to use the IP as the um, as the thing to broker. And I just think this is a mistake all around. Um, if wow. you look at something like Los Alamos, for every one actual uh, researcher like uh, Shockley, um, they had nine research engineers. And these people, their job was to take the weird transistor that Shockley and Bardeen built originally and turn it into something that Western Union could go mass uh, mass produce. And I think that's often forgotten. And you see this in a lot of these research institutions where they just are trying to peddle this IP that's not ready for prime time. And there's just this gap. There's a gap between deep tech venture capital, um, which isn't patient enough to figure it out and doesn't want to pull enough capital, and the universities who want quick access dollars, I think. Right. That makes sense. Oh, why well, do you think about connecting these two up a little bit more? You know, is it on like the, the legal side? You know, a lot of these, inv- you know, inventions and research is backed by federal government money. You know, should we be pushing them, you know, to be a little more lenient and uh, getting more tech like transferred into the real world? Yeah, I think there's probably, um, you know, there could be some statutory changes that I haven't thought through all of those. Um, I think it's just really a point of view. Uh, really is gotcha. that um, if you look at where it's been very successful, for example, at Stanford, and I wouldn't say it's their tech transfer per se that was so so uh, positive there. Um, back going back to Hewlett and Packard, um, who came out of Stanford University, who were encouraged by the professors to go out there and start something, and that became a cultural element of Stanford. Um, so it wasn't ju- again; it's not just about the technology that's being developed; it's about the people developing the technology. This is again something tech transfer forgets, especially in this fast-moving world. A patent today is not going to be useful a few years from now in most fields that are at the bleeding edge. What you really need is the system that's going to generate more IP over time. And that original IP might be the base and in some cases has a company associated with it. But but in most cases, really, you just need to build more. So I think it's just a complete flip in thinking um, about um, how it fosters early stage startups. Frankly, I think there's a market gap here. I think I've thought about building this for years. Um, Call it Morton Labs. Um, There's like there's something in between where uh, the VCs fund. Um, and where the IP is spun out. There's that messy middle that needs to be funded. Uh, And I haven't quite figured out the right business model for this yet, but I really think there's an opportunity here. Um, And we can see a real flourishing in science technology if we got this right. I really like that. I really like that. Keep exploring. I, that, that, that's really exciting. This is really exciting there. Um, I'm, I'm curious. Uh, you just mentioned some things which, which remind me of you know different cultures that in, within different institutions and how that can kind of affect outcomes. You know, you've worked in a variety of different, uh, you know, locations from D.C. to, you know, New Mexico to, you know, the middle of the country and, you know, San Francisco, the Bay Area as well. Um, what are the big differences you see culturally between all of those different kind of locations? And, and how do you think that kind of leads to certain success in different kinds of like endeavors or, or perhaps hampers people along that kind of journey? 
Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, in San Francisco in particular, there is sort of like this wonder for the future. And when I say San Francisco, I mean the entire Bay Area, right? Remember, Silicon Valley is is the South Bay originally. And people come there, like I came there in the 90s because I was a misfit in my own town, right? Like I liked to read. I liked, you know, reading weird books. I liked playing with computers. Um, and I was really hopeful about science in the future. And it turns out lots of people move to the Bay Area because of that. Um, it means there is a culture of helping people, right? Like doing interest for people is now something I'm honored to be called on to do. In my early days, I was helped by so many friends and mentors to give me early introduction. That's just what you do in the Valley. I don't think people appreciate the, the concentration of talent um, and all the interactions um, that that creates in a place like a San Francisco that's very, very hard to replicate elsewhere. Um, like when we came to New Mexico, the reality was that we had to import a lot of talent um, into the company because it's, ju- it's just not there. Like a lot of the talent that would have gotten gone into computer science ended up going somewhere else to go study computer science and then stayed there. So there's not a lot of latent talent there. The people that chose to stay at Los Alamos, right? You're, you're going to Los Alamos because you're probably at the top of your science career. You're going to spend 25, 30 years there, get a nice salary, a nice pension. Um, you're almost by definition very risk adverse. It's a great job and your service of the company yeah. country is uh, um, is welcome. But like that's not the kind of person necessarily that's going to be at a startup. Same thing with Omaha. Um, when I went and did the ag tech company, right, there's just not a huge concentration of talent here. I think to me, this is what's really missed. And and when people um, talk about the death of San Francisco, the reality is that there is a concentration and a culture there that is very hard to replicate elsewhere. Yeah, I I definitely think that is absolutely the case. The conglomeration effects, I think, are still actually perhaps underrated. Just going back, you know, seeing everyone in Hayes Valley, I'm walking around and I'm connecting. You know, I, I see, you know, someone that's been on this podcast, you know, once every like two hours walking around Hayes Valley in San Francisco. And it's a, a bit of a leading indicator that perhaps this is the right place to be. I'm not sure. Or, or maybe not. Maybe you should uh, avoid it. Uh, but it, it's, uh, it, it is interesting how, you know, the, the, the concentration of talent, despite the fact that San Francisco is quite honestly, a little bit unlivable, um, you know, from a perspective of, you know, just crime and, uh, you know, housing prices just being so out of control that it actually, you know, it would be difficult, I think, for for us to do what we're doing with it, without paying a lot more in salary early on. Yeah, I mean, these are issues that I, it frankly, is one of the reasons I moved into the nonprofit world is that, you know, I spent, you know, my 30s really selfish and I'm walking through South to market to my office. Yeah. I always used to walk and yeah. I'd be like, when is someone going to solve these problems? <laughs> and it's really weird for someone who has a libertarian focus to wonder when the government is going to do something. Um, and frankly, the shame on the government of San Francisco for abandoning so many homeless people, abandoning the youth with their terrible schools, abandoning um, uh, groups in San Francisco, particularly minority groups, in terms of just their 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 general personal safety, like shame on the government of San Francisco. Um, I don't think we should look to the government of San Francisco as the solution. There are plenty of really smart people that live in San Francisco with more means than any other city in America. Surely they can come together in this sort of third sector, the independent sector, and try to solve some of these issues. I'm confident that with the creativity and talent that they apply in looking at technology 
and matching that to business problems, I am certain they can go look at technology and other tools available to them and apply that to social problems. And frankly, I'd call on them, go do it, right? Like I, I came into the social sector exactly because I saw this gap. Uh, and I just wish San Franciscans would re- really step up around this. Yeah, I definitely think there there needs to be a call for more people who uh, you know look up and say, "Hey, like maybe it is my uh, my my duty to help here at being a citizen." And and perhaps just generally, that's that's more of a bottom up approach that we could encourage is for everyone to think more you know closely about how can I help my community you know flourish and not just how can I help myself flourish. But it's, it's difficult to you know impart that message to people. Yeah, I mean, it's like it's easy to point the finger. <laughs> it is. It is. It is. Um, I want to talk more about, you know, some of these bottom-up solutions to a lot of America's social problems. Um, you know, at Stand Together, you guys are doing a lot of good work on, you know, trying to encourage this around zoning, around, you know, uh, loosening kind of occupational licensure and a lot of things like that. And, and tell me if I, I misspeak on any of these fronts. Um, what do you think the biggest lever is that you, you guys have on the policy arena to encourage, you know, personal responsibility or um, the ability for people to kind of take charge and help themselves out of some of these uh, the sticky wickets we've got into as kind of a culture and society? Well, I think, you know, one of the things we look for um, in the organizations that we support um, is that they start off with empowering people, um, right? I think that th- this means that, you know, not just like, how are we going to live a better day or week, but how are how are they going to help people to live a better life, right? How are they going to find lives of meaning? How are they going to become self-actualized? Um, and that's a key thing that we look for. Um, you know, one of the ways you do that is by helping people, well, recognizing that everyone is an individual, um, and that you can't just use a template for helping them out of whatever situation they're in. Um, so l- let me just give you a few examples. Like the Phoenix is one of my favorites. They uh, they focus on people with substance use disorder and introducing them to sort of athletics as a way to uh, build a community around them for support. Um, and it's truly incredible. They built many gyms. Um, you know, started off from a founder that was close to the problem. Something else that we look for is like, much like you look for passionate founders in technology um, who are obsessed with the problem, oftentimes the best proud founders in the social sector um, are those that were closest to the problem also. Um, so they, you know, they've taken this model. It's They've been able to scale it up. Um, it's been a great, great collaboration with them. Um, and recently, there's a technology component now, too, where they've started to build an app um, to build an offline community. So unlike gyms, which are very expensive and tied to a location, um, you can set up sort of a fitness schedule anywhere and give support to people no matter where they are on their phone. This becomes a powerful new tool. So I think that, you know, a few lessons here is, you know, how do you empower people? How do we find organizations that are founder-led where they really understand the problem? Do they have a novel solution to um, one of these sticky wickets, as you said? Um, and then can we find ways to scale them up? Like if the solution is working well, um, what ways can we use technology and other tools to help them scale up? And that's sort of generally what we're looking for as a community when we find an organization to support. That's great. That's great. And I, I do love to focus on technology and philanthropy. It seems to be like uh, that's something, uh, an un- underserved area that, that has a lot of kind of alpha left. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the mental models that I've tried to break in my head over the past year is this nonprofit thing, right? Like, what is a nonprofit? A nonprofit is a tax designation and nothing else, right? At the end of the day, um, all these organizations are creating products to serve their customers um, and help them live better lives. 
Um, yes. And when you think of it like yes. that, you realize that the, there has to be a business model there. Sometimes donations are the right business model. Sometimes there's another kind of business model. So one thing that's really unique about Stand Together is we're also pretty agnostic to the type of organization only that the organization is really helping people in their lives. So, for example, we have a, a venture fund. So Stand Together Ventures Labs invests in for-profit organizations. Um, and what's cool about it is maybe two things. One is we'll often look at deals that other VCs would pass by because they can't see the billion-dollar opportunity. Because that connects to the second point that, um, sure, would we like a financial return out of that? It would be great if we did. But really what we're going for is a social return. The financial return is just validation of that product and showing that they can have a sustainable business model and get the product or service into the hands of the people that need it the most. Uh, but really, we're looking for that social good, right? Like, how can uh, the portfolio companies um, create social equity, not just uh, um, capital for us? That's great. That's great. I, I, this is this question is somewhat related to this, and you might have answered it already. Um Recently, I was talking to someone who uh, worked in philanthropy for something like 20 years, went and started their own nonprofit, uh, and he was complaining to me one of the problems he had. He was an advisor to a very wealthy person who had, had made some money in natural resources, and one, one of the problems he had, he's a very smart guy, was that you know a lot of people in philanthropy want to find things that are underserved or uh and also um you, you know someone something someone else has not done yet so they can get that kind of excess return of good or utility in the world one of the problems he had though was um you can find these people but then you know you've got to keep supporting them for the long term if you want them to be successful and there's kind of this drive i feel like in a lot of a lot of you know context to, to get people to some kind of self-sustaining challenge there where oftentimes you know you can have underserved or um problems that are overlooked but if you fund them you're almost kind of committing to funding them for a long time because by definition other people have overlooked them or thought they're not important um that's an interesting perspective again i'm i'm kind of an outsider to this market and you know given my sort of very venture focused lens i'll give you that lens um too many philanthropies are around for too long that do too little, yeah. period. Um, and I would love to see, like, now I'm going to use business terms here. I'd love to see more consolidation <laughs> okay. in the market. Gotcha. Yeah. I'd love to see better data-driven decisions, right? Like, rather than trying to, like, I, I'm sorry, there's just not that many problems. Like, what yeah. are the problems we all care about? We care that people are educated, that they have good jobs, um, that, you know, their children are growing up healthy and happy, their children are well-educated, right? Like, these are all the standard problems that when someone falls in society, there's a, a place that we can help them. Um, these are the same problems that um, have resonated with with humans for probably thousands of years. So I really don't think there's that many new problems out there. Go f Instead of starting something new, go find an organization that already exists. Uh, I really encourage people to do that. When you do find one, really understand how they're changing people's lives, not how they're just a point solution for today, but how they're really changing lives for the long term. Also, look, how are they using data? Are they really talking to their customers? Are their donors their customers? 
or the people they're serving their customers. There are just far too many philanthropies that treat their donors in co- as customers because that's where the revenue comes from rather than the people that they're serving as customers. So I really think that there is there is hopefully you know a sea change coming in philanthropy where we're far more fo- customer-focused, we're far more data-centric, um, and we're far better at sort of leveraging uh, the principles of, of, in business to uh, to go help people live better lives. So just less navel gazing overall and more just focus on on the ground. Like, how do we actually help people, perhaps? Yeah, no, no. And, and I'm not trying to, to, to be heartless here. I think quite the opposite. Right. I think that um, I think that, like, it's just really important that we again, this this sort of focus on the customer is something that's really often lost in philanthropy. And um you know, I think that I want to see more people come into this sector and more novel ideas. Uh, but like also recognize that uh, there's a lot of organizations out there right now that may be doing the kinds of things that, that you already care about. So it's worthwhile. It's worthwhile taking a step back and understanding before you just jump right in. Kind of take the outside view there that perhaps, you know, perhaps everyone's not not you know, off the rock or they're, they're already all into something and, 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 and then go from there to try and try and improve things. For sure. That's great. That's great. You wrote a piece about uh, kind of a postmortem on Descartes Labs, which was incredibly helpful to me, I think, in framing my thinking about how to build you know, a business that's kind of related to data and some of the pitfalls that can happen when you're trying to do that. You know, as a, a young new founder, what's the one piece of advice that you would give me uh, to try and avoid a lot of heartache as I build this kind of data business? Uh I mean, there there are many. I think at your stage, <laughs> it's just make sure you have product market fit um, and yeah. don't fool yourself. Um, gotcha. You know, I think that you know one of the sins that we committed at Descartes Labs is we had some really earlier early customer success, um, and we are investors. Um, we pat ourselves on our back and just assume that we we were doing something right there. Um, and the reality was that we didn't have something that was scalable. Right. They say nail it before you scale it. Um, and too many companies have spent way too much money trying to scale something before they really, really found that product market fit. So that's the number one piece of advice is just make sure make sure that you found that. So be, be sure that you can you, that yeah, you've executed well and you've got product market fit before you go and uh, and put gas on the fire. If that makes sense. Yeah. And, and, you know, the road to finding that is really hard. Right. So, um, you know, another sort of mistake that we made at Descartes Labs was, um, you know, we were really a glorified consulting business. And the thing that like it's so easy to point fingers um, and say, oh, you know, you made a big mistake doing that. Like literally that's how all enterprise software companies start. Right. Is yes, exactly. Um, it's so true. Yes, absolutely. Right. Like you're 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 in there solving a really particular problem for someone, praying that other people have that problem too. Maybe you got some a little bit of evidence that other people have that problem. Maybe you have a thesis that people have that problem, then you go try to find them. But the reality is that a lot of your early solutions are going to be highly custom and that's okay. The problem is if five years in, all of your solutions are still custom, you do not have a scalable software business with high gross margins. You have a consulting business 
uh, with low multiples and much lower gross margins. And that's just a very, very different business to be in. And it's probably not what your investors signed up for. Well, and it, it seems like it's one of the challenges. It's very difficult to tell early on. Like you said, you know, you've got to do things that don't scale to quote Paul Graham, but that inherently implies more of like a consulting-esque approach. And so you're just trying to first make someone happy and then see, okay, is this repeatable? And you've got to kind of do both. And sometimes like you get there and sometimes you don't. Yeah. And I think this is where um, it's so funny, like when you write something like this, people's comments on Twitter are sort of like these like tiny little aphorisms um, uh, that sort of try to be pieces of wisdom or point out all the flaws. It's like, of course, we thought about a lot of that while we were doing it. It's just um, hindsight is twenty twenty. Let me paint you just a quick picture of the company for people that don't know about it. So. So spin out of Los Alamos, it was me and a number of scientists that came from Los Alamos. The expertise was in big data, supercomputing, AI, and particularly satellite imagery, so complex data sets. So what we did is we applied this to um, large global data sets, initially looking at agriculture. So basically the things you can see from the sky typically are large. Um, they don't move. Um, we successfully applied it in agriculture, particularly looking at global corn and soy yields. So how much corn and soy is growing at any given time on the planet is a really important number if that's one of your inputs or if you're trading it or if you're a farmer. So those those kinds of numbers are, are quite useful. We had something that's pretty accurate. Um, and that's how we started off the company. The big problem we had was we weren't sure what kind of product we ultimately wanted to build. So our biggest deals were large consulting deals, but the question was, were we going to do more custom consulting deals? Um, were we going to sell the platform itself, right? Are we going to sell our scientists were using this platform that access to petabytes of data and can use it to build these very valuable models for a client's custom? Should we sell the clients those that platform? Or maybe a third option is, do you sell products on top of that platform? So call it predictive feeds that sit on top of that product platform that are fed by satellite imagery. Um, and this was what I call in the post the Descartes Labs dialectic, uh, which was, are we a platform company or are we a consulting company? Are we a software company or a consulting company? Um, and that really defined sort of the history of the company and in, in both the things that we did really well um, and where we sort of tripped and fell. That makes sense. That makes sense. Do you think, um, and we don't have to talk about this too much. I know like these things are not like fun to talk about in retrospect, but I, I think it, it, it's very quite helpful for folks to learn about this and just like how these businesses unfold. Like, you know what I mean? Like there's all kinds of different ways to go. And I mean, you still exited the company. It's not like uh, it maybe wasn't the exit you wanted, but it's still, the, the company still exited. Um, I, I'm curious, do you think you would be, would have been better off just picking one? Like we're going to be a consulting shop or we're going to like try and just burn the boats and build a platform? Or is it like, I mean, hindsight's twenty twenty, right? You guys were optimized best you could. You had a ton of really smart people. So it's not like, you know, there's a reason you guys did all that, right? Yeah, I would say we mean, maybe I'll, I'll boil it down to two fundamental mistakes. So one is I think that we just should have been honest with ourselves um, that we were a high-end consulting company. And there was plenty of money being thrown around at that time to organizations like ours that had that kind of talent pool that could build really valuable models. So I wish we would have done that. Maybe like even uh, 
even further back, I think we should have just created a hedge fund because we've all been very rich if we did that. But I, so. um, I, I think that if we were just honest with ourselves and our investors that we were a consulting company, it would have changed how we grew. We could have said, hey, a product may come out of this, but I think we can grow steadily year over year. We would focus on the gross margins of every deal, right? Like make it make sure every deal had margin rather than yeah. sort of the promise of future revenue. Um, and we just would the financial engineering for the company would have been totally different. Honestly, the other mistake we made is got getting way too hung up on the data set. So like we did some stuff with satellite imagery that at the time was crazy remarkable, right? Like one of the first things we did in the first six months was to process a petabyte of data in under 24 hours on Google Cloud using 30,000 processors. Google had never heard of that before. Um, They told us it was the largest calculation ever run on Google Cloud outside of Google at the time. So we became real buddies with them. But then we got all excited about it. It's like, oh, what can we do with satellite imagery? Look at how big our data sets is. When we were saying to the VCs, look at how big our data sets is, give us some money or customers, the same thing. What they also have been hearing is, wow, you're burning a lot of cash because you're storing petabytes of data and doing enormous amounts of compute. Is that really valuable? Um, And there's probably a post to be written here too, but I don't think there are a lot of commercial use cases for geospatial data um, such that the cost of manipulating the data, acquiring the data, cleaning the data is greater than the alternatives that exist. Uh, and that's something that like was proven to us over and over and time and time again. The reality is people wanted a buy or sell signal for corn. They didn't want to see pictures of corn. Uh, and that was one of the fundamental mistakes we made in the company for sure. That makes sense. Don't get obsessed with the data. Right. right. D- d- yeah, yeah, yeah. It can be very attractive. And it's interesting, right? And you're getting a lot of applause as well, right? You know, you talk to Google, you talk to the Google sales rep. He's like, holy mackerel, you know, no one's spent this much cash on us before. This is the biggest, you know, you know, compute ever done on our system, you know, and, and, and all this stuff. And, and customers get excited about it. But perhaps the utility isn't isn't always there. But it's a real challenge to kind of navigate that. Well, Mark, um, so I'm curious. So you've, you've, you've worked in the private sector. You've worked in the public sector. You've kind of, uh, you've been a- across the, the kind of domains here. I, I, I'm curious, um, how is it different running a, um, you know, a startup versus running kind of a big philanthropy? Or are they pretty similar at the end of the day uh, w- with regards to how they operate? I mean, look, there's always, there's always going to be differences in how organizations are managed, particularly on based on their size and and how long they've been around. So we've been around for long enough that we're more stable than a startup. That being said, one of the reasons that I'm here um, is that we focus on constant creative destruction. Um, So our founder, Charles Koch, um, uh, one of his biggest fears, and he'll, he'll say this directly, is, is entropy, right? That systems that don't have injections of energy tend towards um, boringness and um, will eventually get disrupted. So if if you believe that someone outside of you is going to disrupt you, if you don't do anything different, you darn well better do something different. Um, it's something I really appreciate about being part of Stand Together is that, you know, we're constantly challenged here to think bigger. Um, we're constantly challenged to think about how we might do things better. Um, and we're constantly challenged about how we might do things differently. Um, so still like based on those core principles we have that are, are how we run the organization. Um, but look, we didn't have a VC a few years ago. Now we do. It started off as an experiment. 
Um, we've made almost 20 investments now. Um, and now it's becoming a, a larger part of the organization because the experiment was very successful. Um, you know, that I think that's probably... I'm blessed because I think that's pretty atypical for um, your typical nonprofit in DC. Yeah, no, no doubt, no doubt. And I, I'm curious, how do you keep that pressure up from a leadership angle when there aren't, uh, you know, in startups like there, there's the market forces uh, in, you know, philanthropy, you know, those can be less. How do you keep the pressure up when there's less kind of evolutionary kind of, uh, I guess, pressure on the organization to be kind of successful? Well, I mean, I would say um, I feel like we, we feel a lot of pressure here because look at the world around us, right? <laughs> like if you're looking around the world in 2023 and saying, wow, this is the best we can That's do in America, like I don't think you're paying a lot of attention. So like I think we actually feel a lot of pressure. Um, like one of the reasons that I came here is I thought, if not now, when? Right. I have the right set of experiences for kind of this first half of my career uh, where I learned a lot in startups and technology and big companies and sort of like how the business world works and how we can apply technology to big problems. Wanted to try this in a new domain, that domain being um, America and some of the problems that that she's got right now. So I don't know. I feel like we feel a lot of pressure here, even though it would be easy to sit back and and be sort of. Um, you know, be sort of stayed and boring, but we're just not like that at all. Me, the, the one other thing I'd say is that um, we run on a management system here called principle-based management. Um, and the easiest way I've found to describe it is it's a kind of, uh, it's a management system for, let's call it self-organizing organizations. So the same principles of, you know, believing in people and empowering people, uh, bottom-up solutions over top-down solutions, those are the same kind of principles that are embodied in our management system. Um, and that really tries to push down decisions to the people closest to the problem, really empower people within the organization, be really clear about our vision. Um, and I think that helps us to stay really nimble too, um, even though it was inspired by um, by, again, the management system at Coke Industries, um, I think we've adapted in such a way that it keeps us very nimble and very creative. And frankly, Coke Industries is an excellent uh, excellent model itself, you know, having grown from a small oil gathering business back in, in the 60s when Charles took it over to the one of the largest privately held companies in the world today. That's great. Can you talk more about that kind of management system and perhaps how that works like on a kind of day-to-day basis? Yeah, so I um honestly it's one of the greatest gifts that I've gotten from Stand Together is a, a deep understanding of principle-based management. So the principle principles in principles-based management are the principles of human progress. So sort of like the think of it as sort of like the basic things um in the Declaration of Independence, life, liberty, liberty and the pursuit of happiness, along with a bunch of concepts from psychology and economics that um, Charles picked up over the years. So that's sort of like the basis. What that has been distilled into is what we call the five dimensions um, of uh, principle-based management, um, which sort of define how an organization works. So it's how do you set vision? You know, how do you find the right people? Um, how do you make sure that they're motivated, empowered? How do you make sure knowledge is flying through the organization at, at the right rate um, so that people can make the right kinds of decisions? So these are the five dimensions and sort of like how we we cohere as, uh, as an organization. Um, what this does for us is 
Um, again, it tries to empower every individual by, like, for example, here, you write your own job description, right? Your roles, responsibilities, and expectations are something that you work out with your supervisor, what those are going to be, which I found very, very empowering here because it encourages you to think about what you do best and how you can contribute most to the organization. So, like, maybe this is a really long way of saying it's a very... It's a very thinking-heavy system and that it forces everybody in the organization to have a shared language forces. We never have forces uh, in, in principle-based management. Um, it encourages everybody in the organization um, to have the same language um, and to feel individually empowered to, to take control of their situation um, and make the maximum amount of impact they can. So um, I just found this to be really powerful in a framework that um, I've been able to apply not just at work, but in life more generally. That's great. Do you think should, more organizations should adopt a management style like this? Absolutely. Um, I, like I will, like I'll be very bold here. I think this is potentially a leap forward in management. Um, if you look at sort of the history of management, sort of, um, and and how it came about, um, you know, there's this period of let's call it Taylorism. Um, that's very top down. We tell people what to do. We're really clear about job descriptions. Um, you get into systems like total quality management that are all about product efficiency and charts and uh, making sure people follow rules to get good, efficient products. These were all sort of leap forward in management that allowed us to get the modern corporation. Uh, but this idea of empowering all the individuals in the organization um, is extremely powerful. And I think what you get um, is more flexible organizations, right? So this idea of the organization being able to self-organize uh, based on the individuals within that organization um, is something that, um, that, frankly, not only have I not seen, but I've not done. I mean, to a certain extent, if I look at some of the other startups that, um, that I've run, um, you know, I did a little bit through tyranny, which is funny because my politics are definitely anti-tyranny, anti-top-down. And a lot of how I managed was very top-down. And now I have a framework for better empowering people based on their talents, for selecting people based on, on their talents that I never had before. Uh, so... You know, at some point, there's probably a piece to be written here, too, about um, kind of what I've learned from from principle-based management. I really encourage everyone to check it out. It's uh, I'm pretty sure it's principlebasedmanagement.com. You can download some booklets there. Charles has written a few really good books. Um, and if you're interested, please do reach out to me because, like, I'm really passionate about this. I'd like to see I'd like to see more startup founders think about management as a discipline earlier in their startup career, because I think it would really benefit them. It would have really benefited me. <laughs> That's great. And God knows anybody who's been managed by me over the past few decades would say the same. <laughs> <laughs> if you had to give one piece of management advice to you know a young founder who you might be talking to right now, what would that be? Like, how can we do it better? Uh, spend more time listening and less time talking. Um, I have a lot. I mean, as you probably tell from this podcast, I have a lot of trouble with that. Um, it's not necessarily advice I always follow, uh, but you can learn so much from people in your organization. Um, you have to remember you are not close to most problems. Um, uh, the people on your team are close to those problems and either you trust them to give you good advice. Uh, and if you don't trust them, the right solution is not to get in there and do their work for them. They might not be the right person for that role. Um, so really trusting people and listening to them is something that I wish I would have learned far earlier in life. Makes sense. That's really good advice. That's great. Um, 
Well, Mark, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. Uh, if people are interested in this conversation, any of the things we we popped up, I'll put some show notes in the in the um, down down there with links for everything we mentioned. But where can people find you? Where should we send them? Um, I'm Philosophy Geek pretty much anywhere. Um, check out my Twitter, my Medium. Um, those are probably my two primary ways that um, I get things out there. Um, so yeah, look up for me at Philosophy Geek on Twitter. Awesome. Thanks so much, Mark. Awesome. Thank you, Will. Special thanks to our sponsor, Bismarck Analysis, for the support. Bismarck Analysis creates the Bismarck Brief, a newsletter about intelligence-grade analysis of key industries, organizations, and live players. You can subscribe to Bismarck Brief at brief.bismarckanalysis.com. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode of Narratives. Special thanks to Donovan Dorrance, our audio editor. You can check out Donovan's work and music at donovandorrance.com.